Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. On Wednesday, officials in San Francisco confirmed the United States' first case of the coronavirus Omicron variant. The patient in the case had recently traveled to South Africa, whose scientists first identified the variant. Omicron's emergence has reinforced concerns about low rates of vaccination in Africa and other developing regions, which have struggled to obtain and administer vaccines. We'll get an update on the Omicron variant in California, and we'll talk about global vaccine inequities, what they mean for variants, and how to expand vaccine access worldwide. That's next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. When vaccines became available, higher-income countries committed to donate close to 2 billion doses around the world, with the U.S. pledging to cover more than half of those doses. But just about 20 percent have actually been delivered. As many in the U.S. are lining up for a third booster dose of vaccine, just 6 percent of Africa's total population has been fully vaccinated, according to the World Health Organization. So what is behind the breakdown and what's needed now to get as many doses distributed and administered worldwide as possible? We'll dig into those questions this hour. But first, I'm joined by Raquel Maria Dillon, reporter for KQED, for an update on yesterday's news of the Omicron variant arriving in California. Good morning, Raquel. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So this case was discovered in San Francisco. How was it identified? Well, uh, there was a traveler returning from South Africa, a San Francisco resident. We don't have very many details about this person because they want to protect uh, their privacy. But they returned through SFO on November 22nd, felt cold symptoms uh, three days later, got tested on November 28th. And uh, was very proactive at that point in providing information about their travel history to public health officials. That was key. Uh, And uh, that sample was quickly sequenced at uh, UCSF lab uh, and uh, they detected Omicron. Yeah. So can you talk a bit more about the US UCSF's role in sequencing the variant? What does that tell us about how California is tracking variants? Um, I spoke with Dr. Charles Chu yesterday at the press conference held at City Hall, uh, and it was actually very exciting and amazing how quickly they were able to sequence this particular sample. He described getting the call at 3 p.m. on Tuesday and... uh, Two hours later, it was in the lab. They did a PCR test, saw some indications of the mutations that define Omicron, and then uh, did further testing that they can do there. 
uh, and had a full genome, uh, you know, by 4 a.m. the next morning. Uh, it was two people in a lab doing this work. Um, and Dr. Chu said this was really uh, cutting edge technology. Um, he said that the genome of this particular sample is now 92.3% sequenced. You can tell he's a real lab scientist mm -hmm. because he, you know, goes down to 0.3%. Um, and uh, it's an opportunity for scientists here in California because now they have a sample that they can culture in a lab and then do these neutralization tests, basically see if uh, how this, the virus responds to uh, vaccines. And we actually heard from Governor Gavin Newsom yesterday in a press conference um, where he was talking about uh, the level of, of testing and genome sequencing that happens here in California. Let's play a bit of his comments. I'll remind people, it's not surprising in many respects, that California is announcing the first case. Uh, this state is the birthplace, after all, of biotech, of life sciences, UCSF, uh, one of the leading uh, genomic sequencing institutions in the world. Uh, and we are blessed to have their partnership and have their expertise. Uh, and we have, as you know, uh, perhaps the most robust, not perhaps, we do indeed have the most robust testing program and protocols in the nation. So, Raquel, what else did we learn from Newsom's presser yesterday? Or are local or state authorities doing anything differently in response to this variant? Not yet. And that's for a couple reasons, because we don't know that much about this variant yet. We will in the coming weeks as tests in the lab and in popu and data collection and populations uh, get done, um, we will know more. Uh, also, um, the Bay Area, San Francisco specifically, uh, the, the officials, uh, public health officials said, were relatively well prepared with high vaccination rates and um, good booster uptake and lots of children getting vaccinated at this point. Um, statewide, uh, California is doing comparatively well with sequencing these um, uh, samples that test positive. We test 16% of positive cases statewide, um, and that is better than the national average, though public health officials say we could do more. Okay. Well, I want to bring Shan So Lin into the conversation now. Shan So Lin is faculty member at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale University and managing director and co-founder of Pharos Global Health Advisors, a nonprofit global health advisory firm in Boston. Shan So Lin, welcome to Forum. Thank you very much for having me. So you've said this case of the Omicron variant was expected. Can you elaborate on why for us? Well, there are just so many um, variants in circulation that it was just really a matter of time before one was going to pop out. Um, I'm not sure that any anybody is truly surprised that it's, that it's coming. And we've had, in some ways, quite a, a long reprieve for, of Delta's dominance over the last few months. So we were overdue, in my opinion, for, for another variant to come. And President Biden's set to announce a winter COVID plan for the U.S. within the hour, where he's expected to introduce private insurance reimbursements for home testing kits to ramp up testing, among other strategies. What are your initial thoughts on what we know of this plan so far? And is this in line with how you think government officials should be responding right now? Well, I think it's one of many things that governments should or the U.S. government should be doing, but having really cheap and plentiful access. Um, to rapid test is going to be a big step. Um, unfortunately, running through running that through insurance is going to leave mm -hmm. a lot of people who are uninsured out of it. And I 
I just read quickly that, that it's possible that Medicaid and Medicare will also not, not reimburse. So that's oh. a problem. Um, the tests are still really expensive. They're, you know, 12 or $13 each. Um, and whereas in the, in Europe and in other countries, they're 80 cents or less. Um, we tested everyone for a Thanksgiving event, you know, it cost hundreds of dollars. Um, our family can afford that, but that's not true for, for everybody else. And if there was plentiful free access, I would, make a huge, huge difference. And so back to this variant coming to be, can you talk a bit more about how variants evolve and are spread from one place to another, the environment and factors that are making this possible? Um, well, that's what viruses do, and that's what life does, um, all, all life forms. Um, every time the virus replicates, um, sometimes it makes uh, errors um, as it's copying itself um, to spread. And it was originally thought that, um, that SARS-CoV-2 was a more careful virus than others, but um, it could be just the, the sheer numbers of replication events that it has um, or other factors that are not really known, but um, it, it mutates more than, more than expected. So if you want to keep variants down, you need to prevent the virus from replicating. And when you know, the pandemic is out of control, you've got trillions, if not more, chances or opportunities for the virus to improve itself. Um, it's thought that a lot of these really dangerous variants are coming out of immunocompromised people where the virus can kind of simmer um, and, and brew a little bit longer and, and have um, more chances to copy itself before the, the body's able to, um, to fight back. So if you're thinking about all the people in the world who are infected and the billions of viral copies that are made per person, um, you start to see how many times the virus gets to roll the dice. Mm. Um, and, and a new variant, the winner will pop out and, and have a party, which is what's happening. So how should the, re- the public react to this news, in your opinion? Um, I don't think anyone should panic. Um, I think panicking is a poor strategy in any case. Um, I know it's really frustrating to hear this, and I'm really anxious myself, but I, there's really no data yet. There's no data to know um, if Omicron is going to be the next big one. Um, certainly, it has a lot of worrying features, but um, it's quoted a lot of the time that there's 30, 30 new mutations on the spike protein. It's not known what a lot of those mutations do. A lot of them could be benign. Um, some of them are in some worse in places, but again, it's really not known. Um, the three biggest things that we need to know are, you know, how transmissible is Omicron? Can it really outcompete Delta? Um, the second thing is, can it um, escape vaccines? Um, and then the third um, piece, again, is, is how dangerous is it if you catch it? And those three dimensions right now, no one, no one knows. There's some um, perhaps optimistic news coming out of South Africa that maybe people who get Omicron seem to have a milder disease. But um, this was a doctor reporting um, in a otherwise young, healthy university population where that would be true for any, any um, COVID variant. So it's hard to say. Um, but right now, I always just remind everyone, whether it's Omicron or the next variant or Delta, which is still here, what right, we need to still do is, is still the, the bus, same. Right. Yeah. Get, Delta's still driving. Yeah. So, you know, and, and what you need to do is the same. Get boosted. Um, get everyone else around you to get vaccinated if they haven't already. Wear masks indoors. Um, and just, you know, do your rapid test before you're going to get together with other people indoors. And Raquel Maria Dillon, um, before we let you go with the break, uh, 
how is Calif- how, what are California officials saying in terms of how the public should be reacting um, to Omicron? Uh, well, they they recommend those that same chorus, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Vaccinations, boosters, testing, isolation when you're sick. It is cold and flu season, and then masking. Um, same message: don't panic, uh, don't change your plans yet. Uh, they're not talking about any restrictions. Um, uh, in, you know, closing businesses or increasing masking requirements right now, um, but they are saying that we need to test more and sequence more to see what's going on with this virus in the real world. And that just reminded me that I know that one of the other um, aspects of Biden's plan is that he's extending the mask wearing indoors um, and on planes um, through March now, which I guess was due to expire in January. Um, Raquel Maria Dillon, reporter for KQD, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Shan Solin, faculty member at Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale University and managing director and co-founder of Ferro's Global Health Advisors, will be sticking around for us a little bit more. And we welcome you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What questions do you have about the Omicron variant? What thoughts do you have about vaccine rollout in the U.S. and abroad? And we'll be getting more into global vaccine inequities when we come back after the break. So give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. 6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Ariana Prail and Fermina Kim. We'll have more after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. We're talking about the coronavirus Omicron variants and global vaccine inequities with Shan So Lin, faculty member at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale University and managing director and co-founder of Pharaoh's Global Health Advisors. And we're also joined now by Dr. Abrar Karan, an infectious disease fellow at Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome to Forum, Dr. Abrar Karan. Thanks so much for having me. So, Dr. Karan, I will go to you now. The, the U.S isn't at the forefront of genome sequencing in general. We, we noted earlier that California is doing a better job in that area compared nationally, but South Africa is a nation at the forefront. Can you speak um, to some of that? And, you know, because really it gets to some of the biases and stereotypes that have emerged around the variant being discovered in South Africa. No, absolutely. I think this is such a critical and important point and something that we really, as global health physicians, had noted even very early on in the epidemic, um, which is to say that there's an assumption that um, lower, lower income countries or countries in the what some people term the global south um, are not as well equipped um, or are not uh, going to be able to deal with an epidemic as well. And so when COVID really started, a lot of people were turning to the, the U.S. and Europe to see what their responses would be. When, in fact, um, you know, the response is actually in many countries um, in sub-Saharan Africa uh, and in Asia um, were actually um, much better 
right? So when we looked at sort of um, uh, in China and in Asia, there was um, experience from dealing with SARS. Um, and then in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, there was experience dealing with Ebola. And so I remember one of my colleagues had said, way back in spring of last year, when he was uh, going to Rwanda, when he got off the plane, they took down his name, they took down his address, um, uh, they they followed up with him. And, you know, when he said when he came to the U.S., none of that was done at the airport. He sort of went home. There was no questions asked thereafter. Um, and so, you know, as we know, um, in South Africa, with um, a sort of history of dealing with HIV epidemic, there had been um, a lot of advances in sequencing. And so we should really be thanking our uh, expert colleagues in South Africa for the amazing work that they did to sequence this um, and share that knowledge with the rest of the world. Uh, you know, instead, um, there were sort of these uh, travel bans, as you know, that were implemented against countries um, in Southern Africa. Even, even when that variant um, was later discovered in many other countries. And so as a lot of us have been saying, we have to really rethink um, even how we're thinking about uh, global health, how we're thinking about solidarity uh, as we deal with the pandemic. Dr. Ayoade Alakija, co-chair with Africa Vaccine Delivery Alliance, spoke to BBC World News last Saturday uh, from Abuja, Nigeria. And I want to play a bit of her comments, which were quite passionate regarding the emergence of the Omicron variant and the subsequent travel ban on countries in southern Africa. What is going on right now is inevitable. It's as a result of the world's failure to vaccinate in an equitable, urgent, and and, 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 and speedy manner. It is as a result of hoarding by by high-income countries of the world. And quite frankly, it is unacceptable. These travel bans are based in politics and not in science. It is wrong. Based in politics and not in science. Shanso Lin about the travel ban, many people, in addition to Dr. Alakija, say it is a misguided knee-jerk reaction, especially given all we know about COVID now and how it spreads, which makes me wonder, are we learning from our past mistakes with this new variant? You know, are, are public and global health policies evolving and adapting appropriately in your eyes? Um, I wish that were true two years into a pandemic, and this is the fourth major variant, fifth if you count OG COVID, the Wuhan strain original, originally. Um, I agree with everything that that doctor had said. Um, travel bans don't work because usually when you know you need one, um, it's too late. It's already here. Um, it doesn't stop people from coming in via other other ports. It's not like people in... It's really just um, a, a very poor idea to be banning countries. You should be doing far more testing um, both at, at departure and arrival and, and doing careful quarantine and contact tracing. Um, that's more laborious. Um, that is, is annoying and hassle for the U.S. And, you know, in the face of Omicron, I, I do think it's a bit of political theater because the administration had to do something in the meantime. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are, who are going to be caught in the middle. And, and as um, Dr. Karan was saying, South Africa should be praised and incentivized in the future um, to do early reporting um, for new variants of concern. Um, I think there's a lot of disincentives now for other countries to come forward, mm. and that's bad for everybody. Yeah, and there is a difference in a country like Morocco, for example, which has done is closing their borders to, to incoming travel and a country instituting a ban on South Africa and other country and other specific countries because they reported a variant like the U.S. has done, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it is exactly like shutting the barn door after the horse is out. Um, Omicron has been here likely for several weeks already. Um, just the U.S. sequence is less than 5% of their samples. California is an outlier. Um, but just because we haven't found it doesn't mean it's not here. It's 100% here already. 
And Chancellor I know you'll have to leave us shortly, but I wanted to hear um, also a few more thoughts on an opinion piece that you wrote this week where you said the U.S. is embracing crude and ineffective feel-good solutions over harder but more impactful actions. What are the more impactful actions you would like to see taken? I would like to see, um, as we were discussing earlier, rapid tests made free um, and easily available. Um, I would like to see more vaccine mandates um, put forward. Um, very aggressive uh, and equitable um, vaccine distribution now that the vaccine um, program is, is now moving into children. We're already seeing everything that happened in adults repeat itself in children, where um, children in disadvantaged neighborhoods, um, immigrants, the ones who are the most vulnerable, are getting left way behind again. Um, and in now when supply is plentiful, um, there are millions of wasted doses, it's really not okay now to leave everyone, anyone behind. Um, whether uh, willfully or, or or not. So those are the really, really hard things um, that the U.S. would need to do um, to get this under control. Shan Solin, faculty member Jackson, at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale University and managing director and co-founder of Pharos <laughs> Global Health Advisors, a nonprofit global health advisory firm in Boston. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Just want to say hi, Steve. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, yes. We are now just joined by J. Stephen Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the Global Health Policy Center, Center for Strategic and International Studies, a bipartisan nonprofit policy research organization. Steve Morrison, welcome to Forum. Thank you very much. Uh, apologies for coming in just a few minutes late. No problem. Nobody else would have known unless you'd said it, but all good. <laughs> we're glad to have you here. And I also just want to remind listeners that you can participate in our conversation. Let us know what questions you have about the Omicron variant, what thoughts you have about vaccine rollout in the U.S. and abroad, and what are your reactions to global vaccine inequities? Do you have friends or family members in regions that are being underserved? Call us now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. We have one comment. Kevin tweets, there should be a federal policy that nobody leaves or enters the country without having all three shots. Um, That's an interesting take. Steve Morrison, since you've just joined us and I know have uh, policy and political experience, what's your your take on Kevin's proposal there? On on insisting that only people that have have had booster shots are admitted, I... uh, We're not there yet in, in terms of feasibility of of uh, requirement, I think that would that would be too disruptive. Frankly, um, there's got to be some some balance between the safety and assurance that you would achieve by having only people that are fully vaccinated with three doses versus the the the, the practical realities. You know, we're in a we're in a situation today where we are having to adjust to a world of variants and a world of endemic virus in which we have to begin to recalibrate what the risk tolerances are step by step. Um, we, uh, we, we don't really yet know the full magnitude of what the Omicron virus represents. Um, I think if it represents something that is uh, dangerously disruptive in overturning um, the value and protections of the existing vaccine regimens, if it turns out to be more dangerously destructive in terms of extreme illness and death, um, 
we will we will have to reevaluate virtually everything that we uh, have put in place in terms of protections. Um, the other thing I'd say is that um, what are we trying to achieve through the requirements on travel here? Because um, people that are, you know, we don't know yet how much, if, if the Omicron uh, will penetrate, pierce and, and, and move through uh, people that are, have boosters or not. We don't really know that. We have a hunch that boosters give you an added level of protection, but we don't know for, for a fact. And if we're trying to keep the, if our objective is to keep the virus out of the United States, that's really not very feasible. If that's our goal, um, what we should be doing is trying to get much better personalized testing regimens that are affordable, cheap, amply available, so that people be, are able to determine and understand their status. Hmm. Listener Anders writes, I don't understand the media hysteria over the Omicron variant. Isn't this putting the cart before the horse? Is there sufficient information regarding the severity of the variant to justify such extensive coverage? Kind of going to a bit of what you're speaking to there, Steve. Well, I, um, you know, I've been cautionary in saying, let's not leap to conclusions, but we've been talking uh, very actively with those in South Africa who are managing this situation there. And um, the transmissibility, the speed of contagiousness, the speed of spread, the contagiousness is certainly um, above Delta. Uh, it has doubled in South Africa in 24 hours. The, now you can say, okay, we're looking for it now. And, and, and the South African government has, an, has a world-class genomic sequencing capacity. And so there's, it's, we're getting a very, very fast and good insight into this, but it's moving really fast. And we're seeing plenty of evidence that accumulate about piercing the immunity protections of those who were carrying some immunity from, from infection. If we're seeing lots of cases of reinfection in that case count of, with Omicron in South Africa. And we're also seeing uh, those who had their immunities through a two dose or a one dose of J&J &J, uh, 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 and the protections and immunities coming from that. So it's, it's a very serious situation, but we're still living in uncertainty. And I think we need to be prudent in not jumping to the wrong conclusions. But I also think we have to take this all very seriously for reasons you've probably already discussed. I mean, just look at the structure, the genomic structure of that virus, 32 mutations on the spike protein. And we could go into more detail, but th that, is, that is like a nightmare scenario of genomic structure. And then there's another 18 mutations outside in other areas that we should be concerned about. So there's plenty of reason for people being extremely cautious in this moment in time. And I think one of the other big concerns, again, that this has brought about is the, the inequity in the, in the global vaccination efforts. And Dr. Karan, where are the core breakdowns in this effort thus far? I mentioned at the start of the hour that the U.S. purchased $1 billion worth or $1 billion, um, just over $1 billion vaccines for the world. Only half of that has been distributed thus far. 
What's happening here? There's a lot of different uh, problems here. Um, and, and one thing that I've said many times now is that uh, as many of these were sort of predictable problems as well. So there's a problem of production. So actually producing vaccines in other countries and other regions um, because there are supply chain issues with actually shipping vaccines out if they're all produced in high income um, areas and countries. So actually getting factories built up in other places, uh, which as, as, you, as you know, Moderna um, and BioNTech are working on doing that, but this was a predictable problem from two years ago, right? And vaccinating the world was something we knew would be important when this epidemic started. Um, then you have the, the issue of the tech transfer, so actually getting the technology over and allowing other companies to, to sort of produce these. Well, what some of the vaccine um, makers are saying is these tech transfers are very complicated. It would be very harmful if um, a sort of subpar version of the vaccine was made. It could um, uh, make vaccine mistrust even worse. Um, as we know in South Africa, you know, there, there were some stories sort of coming out that the supply in certain areas had, had exceeded the demand because people did have some hesitancy um, around that. And so all of the issues that we've seen in the U.S., right, around um, actually deploying the vaccines into communities, those are issues that you will expect to see in many places. And I think every country deserves the attention um, and, and, and sort of um, the due process to get vaccines uh, to people and into communities and to build up that trust. We're just very short of time, unfortunately. Um, and so this, is, this has been, uh, you know, very, very problematic. Yeah, because there's, you know, there needs to be a public health um, education infrastructure and just the refrigeration. There's all these elements that go into it. And I know Biden in his press conference for the Omicron variant or just at another press conference. I'm not sure it was that one, actually. But he was saying that, you know, we've given doses South. They've actually returned some. And, you know, at face value, it sounds like, oh, OK, well, South Africa is not accepting the vaccines because they're not doing a good job. You know, it can lead to that type of thinking. But that's not really what's happening. There are just so many different aspects to this, right? There are so many aspects to this. And I think that when you say, OK, in the U.S., you know, we're appreciating the complexity of this and that we have people that have reasons for being um, hesitant or have questions and let's address those. Why are we not thinking the same way when it comes to our colleagues in other countries? Why is it that in other countries, if people have questions or hesitancies, that they're being cast off as sort of um, asking for too much, right? I mean, this is where equity comes into play. The, the, these things are predictable problems that trust building for an epidemic has to happen early on um, over time. And, you know, I, I think that a lot of these were issues that should have been uh, addressed or be, they should have started to be addressed back in early 2020 um, in other countries. We knew that this was going to be a problem. Let's go to caller Dion in San Francisco. Dion, you're on. Hi, I'm a, a old HIV nurse with 40 years of experience and in, here in San Francisco. And I just recently came back from... West Africa, where I was working in the country of Togo on HIV. And I can attest to the impact of the injustice around vaccine rollout. So Togo, being the 10th poorest country in the world, had to really uh, step up immediately around COVID at the beginning of the pandemic and did a really stellar job of uh, protecting their population by uh, mandating COVID testing on arrival at the airport. And then people had to stay it, near the airport 
and couldn't start traveling until they got their negative test. So that's what I did when I got there. On the vaccine side, they received vaccines back in April through COVAX, the, the, the United Nations, WHO uh, supply. They got AstraZeneca. They vaccinated half of their healthcare workers fully, the other half partially, and then there was no vaccine for four months. Then in September, they got some doses of Pfizer, which they used up immediately. Then nothing until now. And now they've received supplies of Johnson & Johnson. Most of the supplies that they get have a very short um, shelf life. So they have to distribute the vaccine quickly. Mm-hmm. And they do it. They're, they know how to do uh, vaccines. They know how to do prevention and good public health because they don't have the capacity to deal with people being sick. Okay. And it has everything to do with the issues of global vaccine justice and all the things that your speakers have referred to in terms of production, et cetera. The well, second point you. I want to oh, make is... That- well, actually, Dion, we'll actually Sorry. have you, you stay on. We're, we're approaching a break night right now. Uh, we're talking about the coronavirus Omicron variant and global vaccine equities with Dr. Abra Karan, Infectious Disease Fellow at Stanford University School of Medicine, and Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of Global Health Policy Center. I'm Mariana Prail in Fermina Kim. More after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. We're talking about the coronavirus Omicron variant and global vaccine inequities with Dr. Abrar Karan, Infectious Disease Fellow at Stanford University School of Medicine, and J. Stephen Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the Global Health Policy Center, Center for Strategic and International Studies, a bipartisan nonprofit policy research organization. And before the break, we were hearing from caller Dion in San Francisco um, sharing her experience. And Dion, you had a second point. She you were, you were getting ready to make? Yeah, the, the last point I wanted to make is that the arguments that uh, I hear for people justifying why we're not flooding the global south with vaccine is has to do with people's vaccine resistance, capacity, etc. And these were the arguments that we heard back in the late 90s and early 2000s when we had discovered and figured out the combination antiretrovirals for the treatment and management of HIV. And we were not making them available on the African continent that was bearing the burden of, of, uh, of HIV and AIDS and death. And finally, when towards 10 years, maybe 15 years after these combination treatments were available in the U.S., when they became available in Africa, there was no problem. People wanted it. The, the healthcare systems were able to ramp up with international support, and many, many lives were saved. So I, I keep hearing these arguments that are very familiar to me, just substitute a different virus. And it all comes down to issues of uh, economic and global justice. Well, thanks for for sharing your experience and comments with us, Dion. Uh, Steve Morrison, do you have any reactions to what Dion has shared? Well, I think Dion has has explained very well and very powerfully the predicament that a country like Togo faces. Togo is in that subset of countries that uh, are tr- are struggling. They've made some progress, but they're struggling against 
uh, a, a number of forces, one of which has been a kind of vaccine apartheid until recently. The, they've been at the mercy of a marketplace where the most powerful and wealthy were hoarding. Um, and the, uh, so you had national government, donor governments making commitments, but they were very late to deliver. You had commitments made through COVAX that did not materialize. When, when the Indian uh, surge resulted in the export ban on the Serum Institute of India in, in April, March, April, that sort of shot a hole in the plans for COVAX facility. Uh, Togo's not in a strong position to do much in the way of bilateral deal-making. They get put in the back of the queue. Uh, they don't have the fiscal power. Uh, and so their options are not ter not terribly good. And so their their vaccination levels are are modest and and they're living in a kind of uncertain reality. Now, the one thing that's uh, several things are happening right now. Obviously, the the wealthiest, most powerful are moving rapidly towards boosters, which means they're paying premium prices for those. So that tilts the marketplace back in favor of the wealthiest and most powerful. But at the same time, production this year has ramped up dramatically so that you've got seven and a half billion this year produced by the big Western, the European and North American based um, uh, vaccine producers. And if you add in China and India, you're up to about 12 billion. That's a dramatic expansion and that's expected to double next year. So we're having a great easing of the supply situation. Now the question is, how do you get those to the where they're needed? How do you finance them? How, how do you get COVAX on its feet? Africa CDC is functioning. It's taking on 400 million doses of J&J. &J. It will be distributing. You've got different outlets jumping into this void uh, and you have more bilateral deal making going on. So how do you get the vaccine there? But then what about the delivery mechanisms and capacities in those countries? We don't know, we don't have a very good idea about exactly what the true cost is for delivery. And then how do you deal with a vaccine uh, hesitancy and refusal? It is a really serious problem and, um, and it has multiple dimensions to it. And I don't think external donors are, are all that helpful, frankly, in understanding what's driving this because it, it it's rooted in historical distrust and abuse a lack of skepticism around the medical system itself, but it's also fueled by these, uh, by conspiracy theories and social, uh, a sort of polluted social media and disinformation campaigns. And so it's powerful. So uh, it's a complicated picture. And you add Omicron on top of that. Uh, we don't know yet what that's going to mean, but it's not good news. And Steve, just to follow up with you, like patents and intellectual property are also a key issue here. The U.S. and the Biden administration is among those in favor of waiving the IP protections on vaccines. But what's the roadblock on that issue? The, the whole, you have the issue of whether there should be a suspension of intellectual property rights through the WTO. India and South Africa came forward, proposed that with the backing of a large group of African states and others. The United States joined that effort. Uh, Europe, Europe and industry very opposed to this. India very proposed to, opposed, um, to, no wait, India, India on the other side. And the, um, uh, they were supposed to meet this week. 
Uh, the negotiations have been stalled out uh, and they were supposed to be meeting this week. They suspended indefinitely the negotiations because of the Amrakan. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that I don't think that single piece is the solution in this instance. Uh, production of M- mRNA vaccines is technically and operationally vastly different than producing generic versions of antiretrovirals, which are much simpler to produce and can be done on mass scale with generic licensing uh, and very successfully was done in the, in the not decade. What's required is a form of technology transfer and sharing and partnerships in which the Modernas and Pfizer's of this world agree to bring to the, to the country in question the type of technical expertise that are needed in order to manage these plants and do the regulatory uh, work there. And we've, we haven't reached that point yet. What we're seeing is J&J building a plant, a, a, a fill and finish plant, 500, 400, 500 million doses in South Africa that'll begin in production next year. We have Moderna and Pfizer uh, moving forward with, with some early commitments in Rwanda, Senegal, the but but these are not these are not full production partnerships, but they're important steps. But because we do need a distributed, we need dis- regionally distributed manufacturing if we're going to escape the vulnerability that low and middle income countries face, where overwhelming ninety percent of the production is in four places: hmm. China, India, Europe, and the United States. And so they get hit with this, uh, with, with a shock like the COVID-19 and they put all the export controls in place and they begin, they use their fiscal might to, uh, to hoard. The solution to that, one of the solutions to that is a treaty and there was there, but we're not going to get a treaty overnight. There was just agreement in Geneva yesterday to start a process of negotiation around a pandemic agreement that is supposed to deal with these issues of equity and access and information sharing and the like. That's a long process. That's not expected to have a result until mid 2024, but that's one pathway towards trying to build legal and normative standards that take, that acknowledge the gross inequity, the gross and deep inequity here. But there's another operational thing that has to happen, which is, the United States and others need to be really putting the pressure on and providing greater incentives to industry to go to South Africa. And And that's actually we have a a listener, John, who tweets, you know, how do we persuade these companies to share mRNA technology with poorer nations instead of lining their pockets? It seems impossible considering that low vaccination rates will create more variants and thus more profits. Do they really have incentive to share? And so it sounds like you're you're saying we need to to build in in more of those incentives. And and Dr. Karan, I wanted to ask you a question actually about Cuba, uh, which has produced three of its own vaccines. And in late September, they exported 500,000 doses to Vietnam. Iran is already producing one of the Cuban vaccines with Mexico, Argentina and Vietnam all hoping to produce the Cuban vaccine soon. Um, Will more of this happen? You think on the road we're going right now, should more of this happen if corporate interests continue to impact equity and access? Um, Well, I think that, you know, I I don't know the details of the Cuba vaccine. Um, I have to look at that primary data, but I will say that um, you know, it, 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 
it looks like there, there are some countries that are really trying to put um, forth all efforts possible to sort of share um, uh, material supplies. And, and then there are instances like with what happened with Moderna, where they said last year that they're not going to enforce um, their, their intellectual property. So countries are free to produce as they want, but they also did not do much to sort of share the technology transfers and ensure this kind of production. Um, and so it was sort of like saying, I'll give you the boat, but I won't give you the key uh, to use it. Um, and, and sort of, um, you know, where does that really leave us? Um, you know, I, I think also to the point that that was made by by one of the listeners. So Dr. Um, uh, Ted Rose, uh, WHO Director General, recently quoted a statistics, six times as many uh, booster doses are administered daily now compared to primary doses in low-income countries. Um, I do think that the pharmaceutical um, sort of mechanism, we have to acknowledge that the highest bidder um, will sort of get uh, those initial doses. The advanced market commitments made by wealthy countries ensured that they had more vaccine access than they would even need very, very early on. And so these forces at play are, um, are certainly real. Um, uh, Dr. Morrison may, may know, um, you know, out of Yale, actually, the Health Impact Fund by Dr. Thomas Pogge um, was one uh, proposal of, of, from several years ago to say that uh, pharmaceutical companies won't be, uh, they, they won't change their behaviors uh, unless they have the right financial incentives to do so. And so is there a way to sort of create alternative mechanisms to finance uh, drug development and Health Impact Fund, which was essentially uh, a proposal to have a fund developed which would pay out pharmaceutical companies to develop medications for uh, diseases that primarily afflict the poor, that don't have a good market um, uh, through traditional vaccine patents. Could those countries be paid out for the health impact of their medications? Um, we've written a little bit about how this may apply to vaccines, um, you know, sort of late stage vaccines uh, that are coming in um, where there is not as much of a market in wealthy countries for them. Those may be better incentivized by, by a fund um, you know, and COVAX was sort of a patchwork mechanism to do that, but as we saw it play out, it didn't do enough. Um, you know, there's still sort of magnitudes behind the, the supply that would be needed. And so sort of getting back to, you know, the Cuba example, again, we need some sort of an organized mechanism to do this. It can't be just sort of the generosity of certain countries at certain times, at certain time points. I mean, we're dealing with a pandemic that is not going to go away if we don't have an organized response to this. Um, and so I, so I do think that, um, uh, we need to really think carefully about it, and, and we're running out of time. I mean, frankly, um, you know, if not Omicron, it could be the next variant that that really um, topples our infrastructure. We're talking about the coronavirus Omicron variant and global vaccine inequities with Dr. Abrar Karan, Infectious, Infectious Diseases Fellow at Stanford University School of Medicine, and Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the Global Health Policy Center and the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a bipartisan nonprofit policy research organization. I'm Mariana Pralin for Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Let's go to caller Leo in Fremont. Leo, you're on. Um, yes, good morning. I'm uh, going to talk a little bit about the Omicron uh, variant. I'm a medical doctor, um, and my, my point is as follows. At this point, we have no idea how virulent this virus is. And even though one of your uh, people there talked about the many mutations that the virus has had, uh, at this point in medicine, we don't know by looking at the genetic code whether a certain mutation is bad or not for us. And so... We don't know how virulent the virus is, and in fact, what could be happening here is that the virus could be evolving in a way to make itself less virulent and therefore be able to survive more among a population 
which is more and more vaccinated. And if this were the case, then it's not as big a concern as we think it is. And my point is that therefore we should be very quickly trying to find out how virulent the virus is before we start yelling the house is on fire. Thanks, Leo. Dr. Karan, I don't know if you have a, any thoughts on Leo's comment. No, I think I think he's right. The, the three big questions are how virulent is it, how transmissible is it, um, and how well does it evade uh, immunity generated from vaccines or from prior infections. Now, um, you know, an important concept to think through is um, transmissibility beyond just virulence. If it's very transmissible um, and we have even more exponential spread, then at large scale, um, you know, people that are immunocompromised, people that have uh, bad diabetes or obesity, that have cancer, um, that are elderly, we'll still see those people potentially infected um, a- a- with severe disease. We don't know that. So that's actually a key question for me. Um, you know, I worked on the Massachusetts state COVID response, and so we have to manage, you know, uh, distribution of limited ventilators, um, limited hospital beds. We don't want to be back in that situation again. That's that's really, um, you know, our biggest concern is we don't want to overwhelm our health system, and that actually would be linked a lot to the transmissibility of the virus. If it's more virulent but far less transmissible, you may not have as many cases. So we just have a couple minutes left, but I want to hear from both of you on, I want to zoom out a little bit. You know, with will the world's, you know, more powerful countries get their acts together in time in terms of acting meaningfully, meaningfully from the knowledge that we are all interconnected? I know the United Nations agencies have been asserting the refrain, you know, until everyone is safe, no one is safe. And Secretary of State Anthony Blinken echoed that this week. But we haven't really been getting that in the U.S. yet. Um, so it, I don't know how optimistic to be about how that will carry out to the world, but I would like to be. Steve Morrison, what are your thoughts on just just kind of morally where we are right now as a world, as a global community? Well, we're at the end of of the first two years of a long war. Uh, it's been chaotic. We've acquired uh, a bunch of great scientific tools that we didn't have before. Um, we've not done very well morally or operationally at understanding and acting on the premise that the solution's got to be a global solution. So we've worsened the inequities. But what does Omicron? do now against this backdrop of a pretty broken world and pretty chaotic, fragmented response, right? Well, first of all, the first reactions in the last week to Omicron have been fragmented, chaotic, and and driven by national self-interest to the most, and very reactive, and measures that don't make a lot of sense, like travel bans. But I do think that the this, this new development, and depending on what direction it goes, and I I think it's likely to land, I think Omicron is gonna land on a very, very transmissible virus that's far faster than Delta that outcompetes Delta. I think it's gonna be roughly as, as the same pathogenic profile as Delta. I don't, could be different, but I don't think it's gonna become milder. And I think it's gonna pierce the immunity from infection and from uh, and from vaccination. And Dr. And so, oh, I just want to get, we just have about 15 seconds left. Dr. Karan, do you have any kind of your big picture thoughts on on how you're feeling about our the big global we of this situation? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I'd say the, the big takeaway again is, um, 
is equity and solidarity, right? So if we don't have that, if we keep treating this as an epidemic when we're actually in a pandemic, um, then the U.S. is is not, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to escape this. Um, so I think we need solidarity globally. Dr. Abrar Karan, Infectious Diseases Fellow at Stanford University School of Medicine, and Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic International Studies, trying to get it all out. I'm Ariana Prail, in for Mina Kim. You've been listening to Forum. Thanks for joining us. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.